Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Peter Montgomery, Managing Director of Right Wing Watch, who talks about the urgent need to confront the link between the Republican Party's racist rhetoric and the rising number of racially motivated hate crimes. Dr. Ned Katire, board president of the Pennsylvania Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, who examines a new Pennsylvania health study linking natural gas fracking with childhood cancer and asthma, and award-winning investigative journalist Alan Nairn, who discusses the challenges facing Bernardo Arevalo, Guatemala's newly elected progressive anti-corruption president, who pledges to restore democracy. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After a decade-long campaign organized by indigenous and eco-activists, voters in Ecuador overwhelmingly rejected oil drilling in Block 43. Inside Yasuni National Park, one of the most biodiverse regions in the Amazon rainforest. The referendum vote taken during Ecuador's first-round presidential election requires the state oil company Petro-Ecuador to dismantle its oil operations in the region, which includes 12 drilling platforms and 225 oil wells. In 2007, former President Rafael Correa announced that Ecuador would refrain from oil exploration in Block 43 if rich nations compensated the poverty-stricken country but the fund attracted only a small fraction of the goal. In August 2013, Correa opened Block 43 to oil exploration, which provoked indigenous and environmental activists to launch a campaign to collect enough signatures for the referendum. After almost a decade of legal battles, the Supreme Court ruled in May that the measure must be placed on the election ballot. Responding to the referendum victory, Leonidas Iza, president of Ecuador's Umbrella Indigenous Federation, declared, This victory shows that we humans are taking action to save our planet during these times of climate crises. In mid-July, the Biden administration added two European spyware companies, Cytrox and Intellexa, to its export controls blacklist in response to privacy concerns and a pattern of human rights abuses linked to the use of spyware against journalists and civil society groups. Foreign Policy magazine reports that both companies, controlled by former Israeli intelligence officer Tal Dillian, operate in Greece, Hungary, Ireland, and North Macedonia. Cytrox was implicated in a scandal in Greece last year where the company's predator software was used to hack the phones of journalists and opposition politicians. This is the first action taken against spyware firms since Biden's 2021 executive order, which limits U.S. agencies' use of commercial spyware. The blacklisting order imposes severe licensing requirements on both spyware firms, effectively banning them from transactions with U.S. companies and accessing the U.S. market. 
Civil society groups say the White House order sends a strong signal to foreign firms selling surveillance products to repressive governments. But while many European countries have tough rules regulating spyware on the books, enforcement has been lax. A new California clean air mandate could lead the way to building a new generation of zero-emission rail locomotives in the U.S. The initiative is backed by rail unions and environmentalists, but the railroad industry filed a lawsuit challenging the rule, charging that states do not have the right to pass regulations stricter than federal limits on emissions. According to In These Times magazine, the development of zero-emission locomotives could create thousands of new union manufacturing jobs. A University of Massachusetts study released this year found that manufacturing zero-emission electric and clean diesel locomotives could create 2,600 to 5,000 new jobs at the Wabtec Railroad plant in Erie, Pennsylvania, where about 1,400 United Electrical Union members have been on strike since late June. California has the power to transform the national transit market, as happened when the state's mandates drove forward incentives for electric and hybrid passenger vehicles. UE President Carl Rosen maintains if California does it, it will force the rail industry to clean up in general. And, he adds, it will become de facto national policy. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On the same day, thousands of civil rights activists gathered in Washington, D.C. to honor the 60th anniversary of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington for jobs and freedom. A white man wearing a mask and firing an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle emblazoned with a Nazi swastika shot and killed three black people in a Dollar General store in Jacksonville, Florida. Local law enforcement said the shooter, who killed himself after the attack, left messages for his parents, the media, and federal law enforcement officials, making it clear his murderous rampage was motivated by racial hatred. The fatal shootings in Jacksonville follows deadly racist and anti-Semitic hate-motivated shootings at public gathering places over the past five years. Those deadly attacks include 11 Jews killed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, 23 Latinos murdered at a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas in 2019. Eight Asians killed at three massage parlors in Atlanta in 2021. Ten black shoppers gunned down at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York in 2022. And five people killed at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs last year. A University of Chicago poll in April found that an alarming 25% of Americans believe the white nationalist Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory that holds there's an active effort to replace white people with non-white populations, a message regularly repeated by some Republican politicians, as well as right-wing commentators on Fox News and other right-wing media outlets. Your reporter spoke with Peter Montgomery, Managing Director of People for the American Way's Right Wing Watch. Here he examines the link 
between the Republican Party's racist rhetoric and the rising number of racially motivated hate crimes. This is, you know, it's really just the latest one of these kind of bigoted mass shootings that we've seen before this. We've seen black people targeted at a supermarket in Buffalo, we've seen Latinos targeted in El Paso, Jews targeted in uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, you know, Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. So a term that, um, you know, academics and policymakers are using a lot these days is stochastic terrorism. And that's a way to, to distinguish from just when we use the word something like a lone wolf or a lone operator, it sort of makes it seem like this uh, person is disconnected from the movements and just operating on his own. But the idea of stochastic terrorism is that um, when there are groups and individuals you know, putting out hateful rhetoric over and over again, promoting these conspiracy theories about certain groups of people, promoting hatred toward groups of people, you know, the more you do that, the more the odds are that some person out of anger or out of, uh, you know, being um, mentally unbalanced, whatever, is going to act on that rhetoric. And we've seen that over and over again. It really points to how irresponsible, how dangerous it is when we have far-right activists and politicians putting rhetoric out there that suggests that uh, violence is necessary. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that going on on the right, not only the kind of Nazi white nationalist right that this shooter is apparently connected to, people who are everyday online promoting um, hatred toward uh, specific groups of people, but also from the MAGA movement right, people you know, who have been threatening civil war if Trump didn't stay in office, and then threatening civil war if he was indicted. And there's a lot of people out there talking about violence. That's going to lead to more of it, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, just to address what you were talking about, Peter, I wondered if you would assess for us, what, if any, link is there between this hateful and divisive rhetoric that we regularly hear from Republican politicians who are expressing condemnation of the LGBTQ community, Asians, Jews, Latinos, the black community as well, and the violence perpetrated by these politicians' unhinged supporters? We had uh, a connection made at a recent uh, press conference. Republican governor and presidential candidate uh, Ron DeSantis was at a gathering after this horrendous shooting in Jacksonville. And uh, the people there, when he expressed his condemnation of the act, he was booed by the people in that community. They made that link. It's always very hard to make a specific one-on-one -on -one connection between somebody said A and this person B pulled the trigger. But I think it is very legitimate to say that the, the climate of paranoia put out by um, people who are pushing all these conspiracy theories, the rage that is generated by Trump continuing to tell his supporters that he won the election and the election was stolen from him and his supporters, it's a lie and it's a dangerous lie. We already know that because the rage that it sends people into that their country is being stolen from them it, it led to the violence on the Capitol, and I think it's going to lead to more, to more of that kind of violence. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think we all need to do a better job of, and I'm including, uh, we're watching people from the microwave, one of the things we're looking to do is not only um, identify the people that are spewing this rhetoric, but then 
hold the public officials accountable for it. I mean, one of the things that's dangerous is that, you know, we have people who who have, uh, you know, nightly shows where they're streaming online, where they're putting out hatred, where they're really talking about violence, talking about the need to um, uh, try Biden and hang him, the need to, to kill uh, Dr. Fauci. I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric that's out there. And those same people get to go on stage with Eric Trump and Laura Trump and other people who are part of the, you know, the MAGA movement insiders. And it's, it's wildly irresponsible for them to appear on the same stage with someone like Stu Peters, who is spouting that kind of violent rhetoric. But nobody in the MAGA movement seems to hold them accountable for that. Uh, Republicans don't seem to hold them accountable for that. Republican leadership doesn't do that. And so I think we all need to, to do a better job of not letting the public officials get away with either, you know, winking and nodding to their far right. Uh, but in some cases, it's not even winking and nodding. It's embracing this rhetoric and, uh, you know, appearing on stage and, and showing up with some of these people. That was Peter Montgomery, Managing Director of People for the American Ways Right Wing Watch. Find related news and commentary on the rise of racially motivated hate crimes in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For years, studies have shown a correlation between natural gas fracking extraction and health impacts, especially respiratory problems. Now three new studies from Pennsylvania, the heart of fracking country, make the case even more strongly that fracking is dangerous to human health. Epidemiologists at the University of Pittsburgh, which was contracted to do the research, found evidence that miners living close to fracking sites are over five times more likely to develop a rare type of childhood cancer. They also found a greatly increased risk of asthma attacks among people of all ages and lowered birth weights. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dr. Ned Katire, a retired pediatrician and board president of the Pennsylvania Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Here he talks about the three studies, the impacts on Pennsylvania residents, especially children, and what needs to happen next. Activists have been very disappointed thus far with Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's lack of response to this serious health crisis. Well, the University of Pittsburgh embarked on three separate studies looking at the impact of fracking on health here in Pennsylvania. One looked at uh, asthma, the other one looked at birth outcomes, and the third one looked at uh, rare childhood cancers that seemed to be on the increase in southwestern Pennsylvania. For the asthma studies, they looked at more than 46,000 patients uh, diagnosed with asthma from the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's data. And what they found uh, was really, to me, it was a bombshell. They found uh, that people who have asthma, who live close to fracked gas wells, had a much uh, bigger, four to five times risk of having an asthma attack. Uh, their risk of hospitalization, their risk of emergency room visits, their risk of having severe asthma attacks was higher. And it seems that the biggest risk came when the wells were in the production phase. In other words, after the well preparation phase, which lasts for weeks, 
the drilling and fracking phase, which can last from weeks to months. The production phase can last for years and even decades. And the risk was found up to 10 miles from a fracked gas well. Uh, that's a long distance uh, to have an impact on air quality and on health uh, in residents who live nearby. You know, asthma is not a mild disease. Asthma can be a quite serious disease, even life-threatening for some people. In Pennsylvania, uh, there was a study that came out in 2019 by two reporters at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that found that there was a spike of rare childhood cancers in southwestern Pennsylvania between 2008 and 2018. They found 27 cases of a very rare bone cancer called Ewing sarcoma. That's a brutal uh, and often deadly cancer. And 40 episodes of other rare childhood cancers for a total of 67 rare cancers in children, teenagers, and young adults. The second study on childhood cancers was really eye-opening. And it found that for people who lived within one mile of a gas well, those children had a much higher risk, five to seven times of a risk compared to someone who lived further away of developing lymphoma, which is a rare cancer, uh, but a very serious cancer as well. And that was also a bombshell of this report. The third study involved looking at the Pennsylvania Department of Health birth registry, uh, and they evaluated 185,000 births in Pennsylvania. Uh, and what they found was that uh, infants that were born to pregnant women who lived near wells during the production phase, uh, they were 20 to 40 grams smaller at birth. Uh, in other words, their birth weight was affected, but also they were born small for gestational age. Uh, there was also uh, an association with prematurity due to uh, air pollution. Uh, this is consistent with other findings that show that birth outcomes are worse the closer mothers are to fracked gas wells. And, you know, other studies have also shown abnormal birth outcomes related to prematurities, low birth weight, and small for gestational age newborns. Dr. Ned Kataire, I know these studies weren't the first to show the health impacts of fracking. But with even more evidence now, what do you think can happen to address this grave problem? You know, the ball is now in Governor Shapiro's lap and in the lap of the Pennsylvania legislature to do something. It's, it's past time uh, for health protective policies when it comes to fracking. And there are already many things that can be done. When Governor Shapiro was attorney general, he convened a grand jury in 2020. Uh, and that grand jury came up with eight recommendations, specific ideas to protect the public against this industry. It's important uh, for the governor and the legislature to come to an agreement to increase setback distances. Right now in Pennsylvania, the allowed distance between a home or a business and a fracking well is 500 feet. And that's way too close. It needs to be much bigger than that. Uh, other things that can be done uh, include, uh, I mentioned those aggregate emissions. It's important for health researchers as well as policymakers who, at the Department of Environmental Protection, who grant permits uh, to keep those aggregate emissions in mind instead of just looking at one site at a time. That was Dr. Ned Kataire, president of the Pennsylvania Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Find a link to the fracking health impact studies and related news by visiting our Between the Lines website at btl.org.
www.ontheonline.org. After decades of murderous military dictatorships, followed by years of repressive corrupt civilian rule, on August 20th, Guatemalans elected progressive anti-corruption crusader Bernardo Arevalo president, decisively defeating the nation's extremist right-wing oligarchy. Arevalo won the second-round presidential election, beating his right-wing opponent Sandra Torres, a former first lady, 60.9% to 37.2% of the vote. Although Arevalo's Samia party won 23 seats in the 160-seat Congress, Guatemala's attorney general provisionally suspended the party, a move blasted by Arevalo as illegal. Arevalo, who's scheduled to be sworn into office on January 14th next year, is the son of Guatemala's former president, Juan José Arevalo, His family fled to Uruguay after his successor, President Jacobo Arbenz, was ousted in a 1954 U.S. CIA-backed coup. In the decades that followed, the military and death squads killed thousands of political opponents and journalists and massacred hundreds of thousands of the nation's indigenous population. Your reporter spoke with award-winning investigative journalist Alan Nairn, who discusses Arevalo's unexpected victory and the challenges he faces before taking office amid reported assassination plots and ongoing judicial maneuvers to prevent him from being sworn in as president. In this recent election, due to a series of technical errors, uh, really, by the current establishment, uh, it's known across Guatemala as the Pacto de Corruptos, the covenant uh, of the corrupt, uh, and they direct the direct descendants of the massacre regime of the 1980s, they made a few mistakes in their management of the political campaign. They disqualified a series of candidates, but they didn't bother to disqualify uh, Arevalo and his party, uh, Samia, uh, in part because they thought they were such a small threat. They didn't think they had any chance of winning, so they didn't even bother to disqualify them. And to everyone's surprise, uh, Arevalo and Samia managed uh, to sneak into the, r- the runoff, and people recognized that for the first time this was a choice, and uh, Arevalo's party won uh, in an astonishing more than 20-point victory. But it's not yet clear that he will be able to take office. He's not yet due to take office until January 14th. The establishment is doing everything they can to uh, block him. The Organization of American States just a few days ago came out with an official notice that they had information about an assassination plot against him from within the government establishment. The Attorney General's Office of Guatemala moved to dissolve Arevalo's political party. During the campaign, they attempted to arrest top officials of that party, and even to arrest uh, the top officials 
of the National uh, Electoral uh, Board because they were essentially trying to cancel the elections. They were trying to cancel the second round of the elections because they saw that uh, Arevalo was on a path to victory. They didn't succeed in that, but at at this moment, uh, they have succeeded in uh, at least temporarily banning, dissolving uh, his political party. And uh, there are all sorts of other things they will try to pull in the coming months. The, The first phase of the battle to actually change the course of Guatemalan history is completed now uh, with the election. Arevalo, the reformer, clearly won the election. But now the second phase, the uh, battle to uh, take power uh, as he and his party are legally entitled to do. With the United States' role in fomenting coups and supporting military dictatorships and death squads throughout many decades in Central America, what responsibility does the United States have What can the Biden administration do right now to support Arevalo taking office without violence, without maneuvers to keep him out of power, whether the Biden administration is uh, keen to do this or not? What could the Biden administration do right now to ensure the survival of democracy in Guatemala? Well, the first point is that due to activism in, uh, in the United States, grassroots activism, which in turn generated pressure from the U.S. Congress. In recent years, the U.S. policy on Guatemala has uh, changed uh, to a significant uh, degree. Uh, And now, uh, during the past few years, the U.S. policy has been uh, fairly critical of the current regime, of the Pacto de uh, Corruptos, and the U.S. is not attempting uh, to block uh, Arevalo's assuming the presidency. And in fact, indications are that due to public pressure and congressional pressure in the U.S., the U.S. policy now is to to let him assume uh, the presidency. The main thing the U.S. could do now is to uh, cut off and distance itself from uh, the Guatemalan oligarchy. Uh, which is represented by a national federation uh, called uh, CACIF, the Chambers of Agriculture, Commerce, uh, Industry, and uh, Finance, because their basic interest uh, is in perpetuation of uh, the obscene distribution of wealth and their ability to buy any piece of legislation or any political decision uh, they want. Uh, even though the U.S. Uh, is now open, thanks to grassroots pressure in the U.S. to the idea of, a, in theory, a democratic transition in Guatemala, they are still wedded to the oligarchs there. And until that ends, uh, uh, it will be difficult for Guatemalans to democratically take control of their own government and their own country. That was award-winning investigative journalist Alan Nairn. Find more news and analysis on Guatemala's presidential election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRWK in Midlothian, Virginia, WHYS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.